Good day. You're tuned into the 76th edition of Free City Radio. I'm your host in Montreal, Stefan Christoph. Thanks for being with us. Um, on the broadcast today, I am going to be sharing an interview with Jean Burskin, uh, who was one of the lead organizers of U.S. Labor Against the War. Uh, this is an organization that organized very seriously across the United States to oppose the invasion of Iraq, um, a very important participant to the mass anti-war protests that took place. Um, I think there's a number of reasons I wanted to highlight uh, this voice now. Uh, one is that the narrative about the Iraq war has changed, so there's sort of an understanding today in, in a broad sense, in the political mainstream even, that well, yes, in fact, the Iraq war was based on, you know, nefarious uh, political um, goals um, and that the Bush administration, Republican Bush administration, was manipulating uh, the post 9-11 political situation to basically occupy Iraq uh, for various social, political and economic reasons. Obviously, that turned out to be a disaster. Uh, this being an illustration of the neo-colonial era of U.S. power post 9-11 as shaped by the war on terror, which, of course, did not end with the Bush administra uh, administration's finish that continued under Obama. And really, until now, uh, there's a lot of policy in regards to the uh, types of warfare that have continued um, throughout uh, the region, um, uh, airstrikes on Iraq, on Syria, um, the support for the Saudi bombing of Yemen and devastating military campaign that has created a human rights disaster in Yemen. There's a continuation across administrations and I think that hearing from this voice, from U.S. Labor Against the War, someone who's been involved in social movements for many decades give us a sense of rootedness to understanding the continuity of neocolonial U.S. policy. And also, I wanted to highlight this voice because Jean Burskin was one of the organizers of a tour of Iraqi oil workers and other labor union activists in the United States um, that took place. Uh, there was a direct solidarity uh, effort that was organized between um, various unions in the U.S. Uh, with some support from the AFL-CIO and the Solidarity Center, uh, but also U.S. Labor Against the War was an independent initiative that was part of the broader anti-war movement. So I've been recording a series of interviews on this effort to build links between uh, labor unions uh, of Iraq and the U.S. during this time of the anti-war movement. Um, as an example of international solidarity, but also to examine the shortcomings that took place. Um, this is part of a research uh, that I'm doing for a paper at Concordia University here in GeoGeoge in Montreal, uh, and also you know, to follow up on my involvement in the anti-war movement um, post 9-11, and to sort of excavate and, and to actively reflect with some organizers about some of the sort of key questions that were coming up at that time. So thanks so much to Jean for being on the program. Uh, here's our conversation.
Can you just like introduce yourself and speak about like your involvement in U.S. labor against the war and why specifically it was important for you to make a connection between U.S. labor organizing and labor uh, organizing in, in Iraq within the context of the anti-war movement. A lot of the anti-war movement was often very, you know, based on, you know, principle like an anti-war principle it was it was less directly linked to uh organizations within iraq whereas the labor mm -hmm. movement i found that that was really great that there was a direct connection between u.s labor and iraq labor unions so why can you just sort of unpack and share a bit why you prioritize giving time to that effort why it was important for you as a labor organizer at that time my father was a World War II veteran, and uh, it became clear to me at some point in my life that he spent his entire life, he actually died relatively young, trying to deal with uh, what, what would be called, you know, PTSD now, you know, and just sort of digest his thing. And then I, I you know, I was a product of the 60s and the Vietnam movement, and there was a, a point in my life where... Uh, I was about to graduate from college in 68 and my entire life, my entire future was based on that moment because Lyndon Johnson had just taken away the deferments for graduate school. And that was my out. So I was going to either have to go underground. Uh, I was going to have to go to Canada. I was going to go to jail, all of which would have sort of ruined my life in a way. But I decided I wasn't going to go to Vietnam. I sort of through great luck, shockingly, got a job uh, teaching school in the South Bronx because outrageously enough, the United States considered that tougher than going to Vietnam. And if you went to teach school in the South Bronx, you didn't have to go to Vietnam. And so that was a big deal for me. And that set me on a track. But uh you know, the war played a big role uh, and sort of U.S. foreign policy. And eventually later in the 70s, after I graduated and uh, I got in the in the labor movement, um, I uh, always stayed connected to what is happening internationally. And so I was on a labor delegation to the Philippines under Marcos. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was a part of the uh, South, labor solidarity movement in the 80s around El Salvador and Central America, which actually was pretty uh, significant. So when we invaded Kuwait uh, and Iraq in the uh, Persian Gulf War, I started meeting with people in the labor movement to sort of be part of the uh, anti-war effort then. But um, at that point, there was a huge backlash, you know, and the anti-war movement didn't get off the ground enough, and the labor anti-war movement didn't quite off the, get off the ground. Uh, but so by the, the onset of the Iraq war, it was so obvious to anyone who was paying attention, uh, including eventually 10 million people who went out in the street around the world, <laughs> that this was a pack of lies, that uh, you know, it was incredibly upsetting to see people making excuses for, you know, including people like Colin Powell, who's now being heralded as a great leader. But he knew 
what I knew, if I knew it, he knew it, you know. And so I could see that there was a lot of tension around the boat. And I was working at the AFL-CIO. I was an officer in one of the trades departments, the Food and Allied Trades Department. I was the secretary treasurer. So it was driving me crazy what was happening. So I wrote a letter to the president of the AFL-CIO, John Sweeney, who was you know, a pretty good guy in a lot of ways and uh, had made some breaks with the uh, what it's called the AFL-CIA history and established it. The Solidarity Center, which has some problems, but has definitely moved away from that deliberate track. And uh, I wrote a letter to him. And I said, Dear Mr. Sweeney, as the leader of the labor movement, who uh, represent people who are going to be asked to both pay for, die, and kill in this war, uh, that helps no workers and only good for corporations and the military. We have a real stake here. And if you were to come out and take a position on this, it could make a giant difference, you know. And uh, he just didn't answer me, you know. Even though I was an officer, I was in the in the building, you know. This was uh, 2002 as it was rolling out, you know, becoming more inevitable. And uh, so... Uh, uh, a friend of mine, Bob Mollenkamp, came over to into my office one day, and he was equally upset. Uh, and uh, here we were under George Bush, who was so transparently anti-worker, and who was already passing all of these things, cutting back on occupational safety and health, etc. The labor movement was outraged and upset. And so why would we want to believe him on this one? So Bob and I decided, let's go for it. And we made a list of every sort of progressive labor person who had some poll in their union around the country, mostly local unions, and sent them a letter saying, hey, come to Chicago for a meeting at the Teamsters Hall in January 2003. But only come if you can come on behalf of your union. We're not interested in just getting a lot of left people in the labor movement who don't represent anybody, either the principal officer or someone delegated the principal officer. Just come and we're going to try and figure out how to get the labor movement. And there was a lot of this stuff percolating different places in the labor movement already. And so we just went. We had, you know, progressive local uh, union there. We had no idea. And like 100 people showed up. Most of them actually there on behalf of their union. And uh, so we spent a whole day working through this. We passed a resolution. And with that resolution, we started moving uh, at the local level, uh, locals and state federations all over the country, bringing the idea of taking a position against the war to their members, having a debate, and having a vote and then joining U.S. labor against the war. Uh, so it was a bottom-up process that eventually these locals were bringing it to their national unions. The other thing we did is uh, through one of the people on our network, uh, Alan Benjamin, had a very good international network of connections in the labor movement. We put the word out uh, to trade union leaders all over the world 
that in February, right around the time of the big international demonstration, we wanted to do an international call of unions. And we got uh, Larry Cohen, who was a senior player in the communications workers at the time to sort of be the chair of the call. And to our amazement, you know, uh, the head of the uh, equivalent of the AFL-CIO in Australia, he, she got on the call and the leading trade unionists from Italy and from Algeria and from all of these countries got on the call and we sort of went around, everybody declared their union's position and uh, listened to each other uh, about how to build the movement together. And uh, that was sort of it. Uh, it was part of my lesson in my own previous history when an anti-imperialist movement in the United States as small and as weak as we think it is, has an enormous impact on anybody in the world because there's so much expecting nobody to challenge the belly of the beast. And so these are big unions that had lots of members. We were like a little beginning, but uh, it meant a lot to people. And so that was sort of the beginning of our uh, effort to build that movement here. Thanks for highlighting that context. Um, I understand that you know, the protests in February were so important. And then in March, also here in Montreal, uh, going beyond protests, there was that effort that you uh, did through U.S. labor against the war to make a direct connection with labor in Iraq. Thanks for sharing what you just outlined about the solidarity aspect globally with, you know, the whole network of unions around the world. Algeria and Italy, many other places that obviously were part of the anti-war movement. Why was making that connection with Iraq important? Why was that a priority? I think that our thinking was, uh, of course, it's good to oppose an unjust war. With the Vietnam War, you know, there was a tremendous amount of solidarity with the Vietnamese that were fighting against the U.S. invasion. So, who are we in solidarity with? And the, the image of who the Iraqis were, were either like corrupt Saddam Hussein dictators or crazy Muslim terrorists or, you know. And uh, so we looked into it a little bit. And uh, it's like, well, wait a minute. There's this very amazing history of uh, in the 20th century of the labor movement in Iraq. And we started hearing word that it was re-emerging, either people were coming back from the underground that had been driven out of the country by Saddam Hussein or driven underground, new efforts were emerging. And so uh, on the eve of our of the first convention, where we had we started inviting delegations from all over the country to uh, meet in October of 2003 and formally create an organization, David Bacon uh, and a small delegation went over to Iraq and they met with workers. They had unions, they had offices, you know, they were organizing and he came back and said, you know, we got brothers and sisters over here, you know, they want to talk about it. You know, they want to talk to us. They were very interested. So we began a series of communications uh, with them that included really three different political federations of the labor movement, uh, including the, uh, the oil workers. There were some people on the ground there 
from uh, international folks who went down, a young woman, and spent a couple weeks down in Basra, went down there by herself, a young woman all alone, and interviewed Hassan and the other oil workers and sent out this report. That began the whole communication of sending messages of solidarity, raising money, and then by 2005, deciding that the biggest difference would be for workers in this country to actually meet in a rocky work, sit an oil worker across the table from an oil worker, right? Sit a hotel worker across the table from a hotel worker. Let them see that we were the ones that had something in common and that the national interest, so-called national interest, was not the workers' interest. So we put a huge amount of effort and we organized, we had Iraqis from these three different federations come over here and we had three sort of simultaneous tours and took them around the country. And there's a video called Meeting Face to Face that Michael Zweig had produced with a filmmaker of the tour. And uh, it was uh, life-changing for a lot of people, including the workers, but including people like uh, Hussein, you know, to come to the United States and meet workers, you know, he was from Basra, you know, Basra was like 95% Shiite, you know, and his people are deeply religious and so on. And like, here he is uh, in a church. And one of the first thing that happened with him after the trip was uh, incredibly difficult here for all of the hoops that they had to go through uh, to get here. I mean, it took them it just took them incredible effort. And he gets there, pick him up at Dulles after about 36 hours of tra straight of traveling. And I take him up to his hotel room. He spoke virtually no English and I spoke no uh, Arabic. But somehow, once I got him into his room, he asked me, uh, which way is east? He wanted to pray. <laughs> and later that night, I realized that the first event of the tour was uh, that next morning at the church of Reverend Graylon Hagler in Washington, D.C. And at that very moment, there were attacks on Christian churches all over Iraq. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, you know, I'm asking these workers and Hassan to go into a Christian church who's going to be filming and everything. And somebody going to try to kill him, a Shiite, you know, hanging in a church in the United States when he gets back. I thought, wow, I, I messed this up. And uh, so when he got up, you know, we had translators. And next morning I asked him over breakfast, he said, no, you're my host. And if you tell me to go, it's safe. I'm going to go. So he goes, they all go. And they're sitting in the front row. Uh, and Hagler, the minister, had decided that he was not going to shave his beard uh, until the war is over. So his beard had been growing. He's wearing a dashiki. He walks up to the stage and gives this incredible revolutionary speech in solidarity with the uh, Iraqi workers. Hassan gets up out of his seat, walks up on the stage, uh, and all the other workers follow him, walks up there, uh, Reverend Hagler and his dashiki, and gives him this giant, hug and it was like 
oh my God, you know. Uh, and he said to me afterwards that all his life, uh, he had believed that all people in the United States hated him. And he knows now that that was all a lie. You know? So that was like the way the tour began, you know. The whole challenge around trying to have an alternative reference point about narratives around who represents a country, right? Labor plays a big role in that. Um, mm -hmm. How do you think the challenge to the ways that the national relationships, well, national in quotations, between the Iraq state and the U.S. government was challenged by this relationship between workers. Can you talk a bit more about why that challenge uh, and that solidarity effort was important in a tangible way to sort of flip the script as it, as it, as it was? Um, I think that the anti-war movement as a whole uh, was very powerful at that point and was very significant and was a huge uh, pushback in it unprecedented way, really, since uh, since the 60s, you know, to uh, U.S. Uh, imperialism. But what was different in all these demonstrations was that there were unions there. There were workers there. And even though there were unions involved in the anti-war movement in Vietnam movement, anti-Vietnam war, it didn't get surfaced as much. And sort of the, the narrative, which was a false narrative, was that uh, movement hated the soldiers and the construction workers spit on the demonstration, and that's all distortion of history. But the fact that the labor movement was a part of this movement, we saw ourselves as bringing the, the anti-war movement, the peace movement to the labor movement, and bringing the labor movement to the anti-war movement. And that was incredibly inspiring to a lot of people. It made people feel real that our movement, our anti-war movement, was not just a college movement or somehow a movement of the left, that it was a movement. We had construction trades in it. You know, we had steel workers in it. We had all these people who were uh, were a part of this. And uh, that is sort of the, where we had to have to root those kind of movements for us to really have substantial power. And we continued to build that. But um, I think part of the hook that made it work for workers was that uh, who was the president? George Bush. Everybody hated, everybody in the labor movement hated, you know, or hugely hated Bush. And so there was no contradiction for people. He was a Republican. He was anti-worker. By the time Obama came around uh, with his anti-war rhetoric and the fact that everybody was so desperate to have the have the Democrats in power, and then we had the financial crisis. Um, we we then had difficulty sustaining the whole the whole anti-war movement had difficult sustaining any power. And while a lot of unions continued to formally be a part of U.S. law, and by the way. Our view of U.S. law was we would not get funding from the foundations. It would be funded by the labor movement. So unions paid out of their own kitty from the members' dues money after getting permission from their members. And that we were a part of the labor movement and we were going to move 
the pole to a more of a left pole inside the labor movement. We were not the people who stood outside of the meeting and handed out flyers or gave them a, like a socialist newspaper. We were the people who were inside the meeting, who were passing resolutions with the officers in the room on behalf of the rank and file. That was a very different concept. Uh, this was an anti-imperialist uh, worker-based effort. Got it. Um, I guess like one thing that comes to my mind is, you know, that's sort of not understood, uh, I think, like in terms of popular narratives around the Iraq war is the ways that the anti-war movement globally and the resistance to the U.S. occupation after the invasion really completely changed the narrative at the highest levels of power about what happened in Iraq, right? You mentioned the election of Obama, right? Like so much of that was shaped by mm -hmm. the presence of the anti-war movement. I mean, right. his addressing of, you know, even as a state senator in Chicago, like the credibility right. that he gained from having taken a, you know, somewhat critical position against the right. Iraq war, just as an example, right? Can you talk a bit about the ways that this grassroots movement, both within labor, but more broadly, you know, these connections of international solidarity that really drove a lot of U.S. labor organizing, the connections with the Iraq oil workers, really worked also politically and socially to really change the narrative about the fundamental questions around why the Iraq war was justified and how, in fact, it's very commonly understood now as completely unjustifiable. Right. You know, the, the politics of our country is based on, the, on a whole set of false narratives going way back to uh, what is called the founding of the country, which is the American Revolution, as opposed to 1619, and all the various narratives. Uh, and it is the false narratives that generate the policies, you know, and drive the, the movements. And when you challenge those narratives, which is one of the things that's happening right now around racism and Native Americans and so on, you upset the whole apple cart. And as a result, the reaction that we're seeing about what you teach in the schools is not just an idle, you know, right wing Republican thing. It's a recognition that if people get to really learn their own history, uh, anything can change, you know. And the narratives about the United States foreign policy, like my father, he was in World War II fighting the Nazis who were Jewish, you know. So it's like for him, that's what he saw. But uh, the narrative that uh, we're something special about the United States, that we fight wars for the good of all, you know, and, and for moral reasons and so on. We exploded that in Vietnam, but then it got buried again, you know. And so we were able to challenge that narrative so fundamentally that nobody wanted to run on that after that. You know, Obama didn't want to run on it. Hillary had to apologize. Biden had to apologize. Everybody had to acknowledge, you know, that it was a bad war. Not that they did the right thing. You know, they sort of uh, continued to do the wrong thing there in a lot of ways. But could no longer just justify uh, that we should be there endlessly and that we had done the right thing. 
Uh, and so it became another huge blemish. And the fact that we then were able to tie this to Afghanistan and we were able to help the Iraqi trade unionists become a part of the World Trade Union movement. We brought them to meetings of the World Trade Union in Algeria and in England, you know, and uh, helped them. And the Solidarity Center helped us with this, helped the Iraqi labor movement become a recognized part of the world labor movement so that some resource could come in when they're trying to struggle with some of these gas and oil companies that are the same companies that they're dealing with in other unions and other parts of the world, people could give them some kind of uh, backing. You know, it was a very real kind of not not a paper solidarity. There were real relationships <clears throat> between workers in the United States, workers in Iraq, between workers in Iraq and workers around the world, and the impact on the politicians uh, of that movement that we all built collectively was very deep, and is still. This whole narrative, well, we don't want another Iraq. And you have the Trumps of the world who uh, don't want to claim it. You know, oh, no, no, I'm not for that. You know, it's sort of like there's nothing to be proud of, uh, even though their real fundamental reexamining hasn't happened. But in terms of the narrative, it doesn't work as a narrative to say, well, we did a great thing in Iraq and now we did a great thing in Afghanistan. I will do more great things. It's more like none of this. You know, we got to stop this. And of course, they want to just do it by drones and so on. But um, I think that was a huge accomplishment. Just doesn't go far enough. Respect. Hmm. Thanks, Gene. Uh, That's really appreciated. That was a conversation with Gene Burskin, who is an organizer, uh, labor rights uh, activist, longtime organizer um, who was one of the founders of U.S. Labor Against the War, uh, which was an organization that um, was involved in building direct solidarities between uh, Iraqi trade unions and American trade unions in the context of the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq. Uh, There was a particular focus on supporting oil workers in the south of Iraq and Basra uh, city and beyond. So this is um, part of a series I'm doing on this topic. Uh, There'll be more coming up. So um, thanks for tuning in to this uh, edition of Free City Radio. I share two new podcasts every week uh, on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. I'm in Montreal, Stefan Christoph. You can reach me, uh, stefan.christoph at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at spirodon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. And thanks for uh, tuning in. I'm going to end this program with a piece of music from a friend uh, and awesome artist of the Iraqi diaspora. This track is called Vietnam. And I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Vietnam, Iraq, Vietnam, Palestine, Vietnam, they want to see us gone. 
so far from home I can feel the bombs close to heart Like the death of a being gone War made us feel like being free is wrong Trying to be a man with a child's spirit song Lullabies when a brother dies No merit when a sister perish us America Drilling with loud toys as the cowboy Bullet riddle the Middle East for little peace Giving in to the inner cheat over the defeats Like a winner you cry oil and doubt joy The same resource you drain Came from remains of deceased corpses Maine all in plain view like Daniel Day Lewis I knew it, you giving off that kill me buzz There will be blood about um, discretionary wars that are not of great intrinsic national security import right, to the United States. They are wars of choice, right? right? Um, that the United States cannot summon the political will and military, um, military strategy to win. And in both cases, the enemies know that their job is not to defeat the United States military to every last man. It's merely to prolong the war and break, Erosion, exactly, break the will of um, their oppressor.